Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship of Huntsville. If you are visiting with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you, even if you're a Longhorn fan. <clears throat> Longhorn fans, you get the card in the seat underneath in front of you, you fill that out. <clears throat> Aggies, just go home and cry, that's okay. We understand. You have a day like today, us Aggies, we, uh, I said the same thing last year too, I think. Just pull up last year's YouTube, it was the same moaning and groaning coming straight from me. Reality sets in and we need uh, a little extra hope. So I'm going to read off something to you that gives us all hope, okay? We all have good news for today. <clears throat> 97, 96, 94, 91, 93, 89, 91, 92, 92, and 94. That's the next 10-day highs. And we are praising the Lord for 90-something degree weather. Amen. When you live in a state or a place of the world where you get almost three months of 100-degree weather, there's one benefit to that, and you're loving the day when that isn't happening anymore, even if you're an Aggie. If you are visiting with us this morning, um, get that card, fill it out, turn it in. There's a box in the back right here. You can turn it in. You can do it electronically. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to uh, just tell you about the ministry here at the church, what's going on, for you to be a part of it. If you've been going to church here for a while and you want to be a part, which you need to be a part of the ministry, be a part of the body, then you can do that as well and um, just find a way to, to be involved and to be a part of the, the work that God is, uh, is doing uh, through this ministry. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 1. CF is in John chapter 1, but he's going to be reading out of Romans chapter 1, mainly verse 18. But he said verse 18, I can't stop at 18, I'm going to read to 23. Romans is an amazing book. Uh, it is a very detailed gospel message. And the truth that's stated in here is one that's amazing in a sense of I need it. Obviously, the world needs it. We all need it. But we need to be reminded of who God is. Uh, C.S. going to be talking about the wrath of God today, which is in verse 18. I'm going to go ahead and read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although God, also although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools." And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. This is the heart of man. It is evil, and we struggle with this as well. 
seeing God for who he is, who he truly is, the creator of this universe, the creator of everything that I am, ever will be, in every place that I ever go, everything in his hands. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you will continue to remind us who you are, a God of complete righteousness, that we fall down and worship. Pray that your presence will be known in our lives, that you'll use us for your glory. I pray that you will use CF to speak truth to us this morning and that we may properly respond. We say this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. As David said, we're studying in the Gospel of John. Focused on that second verse of chapter 1, talks about Jesus being with God, meaning he's in union with him, they're at oneness. And so I've been looking at the attributes of God for about the last uh, pretty close 15 weeks. And we're going to finish up with the wrath, and then next Sunday, the love of God. And we'll be done with that portion, and we'll be on verse 2 and start the exegesis of the actual book. So today we're looking at the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not a popular topic nor a popular subject. Probably the least favorite attribute that God has. Uh, but the Bible says more about wrath than it does about love. And uh, Jesus himself spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. So it's, it's a reality. But there's bad news with the wrath of God, but there's also good news. And so we're going to look at both sides today, the good news and the bad news of the wrath of God and what it means. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll begin our study. Father, we come before your throne of grace, thanking you, Lord, for this day, praying for this time together that you grant us insight and understanding. And Lord, you direct me in understanding of Scripture and that I'd rightly divide your word of truth that I would explain it clearly and accurately and in a manner and a way that your people can understand it and receive it in their life to better serve you, Lord, I do pray. And I thank you, Father, for all you've done. And I pray and ask this of you in Christ's name, Lord. Amen. Uh, we look at this passage here. I'm in Romans 1, verse 18. Romans 1, 18. Um, and you'll see it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, the word wrath, let's get a definition for it, okay? God's wrath is God's response to all violations of his holiness, all right? God's wrath is his response or reaction to any violation of his holiness. Divine wrath is regarded as a natural expression of God's divine nature, which is absolute holiness manifesting itself against the iniquity of mankind. So when we talk about the wrath of God, God's wrath proceeds forth from him and it's holy wrath. Therefore, it's different or unique from the wrath of man. The wrath of man is almost always personal and selfish, and it's explosive. 
you'll find as you read about the wrath of God, God is very slow to exercise wrath. But wrath is something that is certain. Wrath is God's judgment against sin. And so when you look at this passage here, it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The word there, suppress, is present tense, so that means it's continual action. And so what the passage is telling you is that man is continually trying to suppress the truth of God. That is man's uh, pursuit in life is to hold down the truth about God. Man, instead of understanding God as God reveals himself, man will reject the revelation of God and come up with his own definition. Therefore, he's suppressing the truth of God. If you ever try to share the truth of God with someone, oftentimes they'll say, well, that's just your interpretation or that's your understanding. I don't believe that. What I believe is this, and it'll be something that's not even coming from an objective point of view. It's just purely subjective, what their personal opinion is. That's man suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. And so when you look at this passage of Scripture, you will see several things that man does. Number one, in verse 18, he suppresses the truth of God. Verse 21, he demonstrates indifference to God. It says, because although they knew God, and that phrase, knew God, means they knew God exists, okay? Because that's what this passage is teaching, that everyone in the world knows that there's a God. This, let me just read the passage. For since creation, uh, I'm sorry, uh, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So see, they show an indifference. Because what does the creation show? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they were without excuse. What it's simply saying is man is without excuse for rejecting God. God has revealed himself uh, and shown himself. And so what man does, verse 21, is he just becomes indifferent about God. Even though he knows there is a God, what's he say? They don't glorify him as God. So he's just, for a phrase we'd use today, they just blow off God. They don't care about him. They don't worry about him. They don't think about him. All right? Then it says, verse 23, they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And this is the beginning of idolatry. So the first step is they try to create man in what image? In the image of man. They try to create God in what image? They try to create God in the image of man. That's, that's what their natural progression is. So they come up with a man-made God is what man does. And that is a form of idolatry. And that brings the wrath of God because you're distorting who God is. And then if you follow it on through with verse 24, it says, therefore God also gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. 
verse 28, and even when they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. What he's saying in those passages is that man rejects God to such an extent, God just gets to the point where he doesn't fool with them anymore. He just, okay, you won't sin, you won't go that direction, go. It's just simply God taking his restraining hand off of man. And one of the first restraints that man has to restrict his sin in his life is his conscience. And you can thank the Lord that you have a conscience because your conscience will limit you in what you do, if your conscience works, all right? And, and I'm serious. There's people, all, all people have a conscience, okay? Everyone has a conscience. It's just that some people's conscience doesn't work. And when a conscience doesn't work, a person goes beyond feeling or sympathy or apathy or whatever, all these emotions that proceeds from a person, when their conscience is dead, they don't have feelings. There's no restraint. And that is when man becomes extremely violent, extremely dangerous. It is a dangerous place to be when a person has no moral restraint internally on their life. External laws prevent some, but it's the internal conscience that controls more than any. And, and so you see in this passage, it says God's wrath is poured out on mankind because mankind has rejected God's standard. So God's wrath is a reaction to a violation of his holiness. This is what makes God so different and unique is that the first and foremost attribute of God is his holiness. He's completely different than mankind, completely separate from mankind. And he has a holy standard and a holy righteousness. And when his holy standard is violated, then the wrath of God comes forth. So God's wrath is righteous and just. God's wrath is never immoral. It's never sinful because God cannot sin. His wrath is always a response to a violation of his holiness. Now, a lot of people say, well, what gives God the right to be like that. Doesn't that sound funny? It, it sounds funny to me, but I hear it made, I hear that question asked all the time. What gives God the right to do that? So there's a three-letter word there, God. When you understand what God means, and you understand the implication that He created everything, He keeps everything alive, He sustains it, He works in and through it, he is sovereign over it. He is the author of life and death. He has the, the right and the ability to do whatever he wants to his creation. And so he establishes a standard. And when man fails to uphold that standard, he's violated God's holiness. So look at a passage. Just stay there in Romans. Go to chapter 2. I'll show you a picture of it here. Paul's writing this portion of the letter to the religious people of his day. And beginning in verse 1. Romans 2, 1, he says, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. That goes back to the old 
principle of the speck in the log. Usually what people get the most upset about is what they're guilty of. That's just the reality of it. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Note, the righteous judgment of God, meaning according to a righteous standard. So what's he telling these people? He's saying you are treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath. And what's it a picture of? The illustration that was given to me is it's just like water building behind a dam at a flood stage. And eventually that dam gets about all it can hold. You got to open the dam or the water will actually burst the dam. You open the dam up to let that water flow out of there. That's how God's wrath is. God is long suffering and patient. He does not just execute wrath the moment a person sins. God is patient. He's merciful. And scripture says he's good. So he gives man an opportunity to turn from his evil ways. But if man fails to do that, each time he's just continually building this wrath up and then God's wrath will pour out on man in judgment. Go to the book of Nahum. I bet you hadn't been there in a while. Um, <laughs> end of the Old Testament there. But I want, I want you to see a picture of God's wrath as it's described here. Nahum 1. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. God is jealous. If you remember, that's what we looked at last week. What's that saying? God is a zealous God. And the Lord, Yahweh, avenges. Yahweh avenges as is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Well, we've studied that. He's great in power. He's omnipotent. He has all power. There is no limit to the power of God. And he will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Speaking of his position of absolute power, his absolute authority, and he pours out his wrath on his enemies. So we see that God's wrath is built upon his righteous nature. And so wrath is an answer to a violation of the righteous nature of God. Now understand this. Point two is that God's wrath is fearful. His wrath is fearful. It's terrifying. 
It's nothing to be played with. Why is it fearful and terrifying? Because what's he say? Go back and look at this passage. Look at verse 2. God is zealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he re reserves wrath for his enemies. Now turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And if you look at verse 10, it says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Which it says, it says we were enemies. We were targets of the wrath of God. Who is we? We as believers, those that are born again, that are in a relationship. He says, you were, at one time in your life, you were an enemy of God. Therefore, you were the focus point of his wrath. His wrath is terrifying. It's frightening. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, speaks of the wrath of God. And it says, Hebrews 10 Verse 31 says this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Having a good understanding of wrath is, is important because it is a subject that you don't hear very much about today. I mean, I could have just as easily talking about the attributes of God left out wrath. I left out some attributes. I didn't cover them all. But wrath is extremely important to understand that God's wrath is the same today as it was the day Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. There's no difference. God hadn't moderated or eased his position at all. Everything that the Bible teaches about the reality of God's wrath is still real today. Contrary to what man may think, man wants to couch God once again in his own image, that God somehow just lets sin go, that he's permissive, that he really doesn't care about this, that really man uh, just has a misunderstanding with God. No, when you violate God's holy standard of righteousness, you are a subject of the wrath of God. Period. That's all. That's, scripture is abundantly clear on that subject. That man incites the wrath of God because of his sin and violating God's moral standard. And it says his wrath will be poured out. God's judgment will be poured out upon sin. And God does not play with that subject. Therefore, it's very important that when you look at the downward progression of sin, go back to Romans 1 just a second. Just go flip back over there, Romans. I'm going to show you something in there. When you follow this downward progression of sin, you look in verse 24. It says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. What is the lie? Let's stop and ask that question. What is the lie? The lie goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
When man was in the Garden of Eden, the devil, Jesus said, he is the father of all lies. And so the original lie is this. Eve told the serpent, God has told us in the day that we eat it, we will surely die. And the lie is this. The devil or the serpent says, you will not surely die. And so the lie is this. There is no consequence for sin. That's the original lie, is that there's no consequence for sin. And so he says in this passage here, they exchange, verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for the lie. What's the truth of God? The day you eat, you're going to die. The consequence for sin is death. What is the lie? You will not die. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then you look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and received in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Have you ever done any of those things? Yeah. You have. Every one of us have. We've done that. Whether you've done it in actions, whether you've done it in thought, you've done it. You're guilty of it. But this is the real kicker, verse 32. What is the final stage of man? When God gives him up, God gives him up, God gives him up. Final stage, verse 32. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, meaning that God is going to judge any violation of his holiness, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, the wrath of God, not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. The final stage is you begin to justify and approve sin. Where do you think we are in this country, folks? We're at the point where we'll approve sin. We'll justify sin. We'll say there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Who are you to judge? God's judging. God is the one that sets the standard. And the final stage is giving hearty approval to it. In other words, endorsing it. Though you may not do it, you will, you will say you will endorse it and approve it. So the idea behind God's wrath is his wrath is fearful. And folks, I'm telling you, when the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, trust me, it is a fearful thing when God's wrath is poured out. You go look at pictures of when he judged nations and the result of it. It's horrifying when you look at it. Terrifying. What is the final step? Final step is this. Is there's good news in all this. God's wrath is satisfied in the death of Christ. Okay? That's good news. Because if you're a believer here this morning, I got good news for you. You will not suffer the wrath of God. 
the wrath of God has been poured out on your sin. And we're going to look at some passages that deal with that, okay? Go with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah and look in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and we're going to look at this Old Testament prophecy about Messiah, or more specifically, Jesus Christ. It says, beginning in verse 1, Isaiah 53, 1, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. In other words, that's just a, a way of Say in Romans 3.23, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Meaning our sin was placed on the person of Jesus Christ. He was opposed, or I'm sorry, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. They will, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And look at this. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What's that forecasting, foretelling, prophesying? that Jesus Christ is going to bear the sin of mankind. That God is going to put the iniquity of man upon the person of Christ. Turn in your New Testament. Let's look at some New Testament passages that speak of that. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Very clearly right there, Jesus is our substitute. He takes our place. He bears our sin. That, that passage says, 
He made to made be sin for us means he's a sin offering on our behalf. Look in Romans chapter five, Romans chapter five, verse eight. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That word for means in our place. He was our substitute. Verse nine, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So we're delivered from the wrath of God because of the sacrifice of Christ. What God did is he put my sin on the person of Christ, poured out his wrath on Christ, so Christ pays the debt for my sin. What that is called is it's called propitiation. And what propitiation is, is that God's wrath, the violation of his holy standard, must execute judgment on whatever violated his holy standard. That is his wrath. So his wrath has to be poured out on sin. God doesn't just take and remove our sin. Our sin is paid for. And God's wrath is satisfied when he judges our sin on the person of Christ. Christ takes the full wrath of God for my sin is what he does. Turn with me if you would to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John, and the, not Gospel John, but 1 John. 1 John 4. Let's look at a passage there. It's going to actually use the word in it. 1 John 4, 9. 1 John 4, 9. 1 John 4, 9. It says, in this... The love of God was manifested toward us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and set his son to be the propitiation for our sin. So see, underline that word propitiation. And in the margin, you can write down Propitiation means God's wrath is satisfied. His wrath is dealt with through the person of Jesus Christ. God is propitious towards us because Christ propitiated his wrath. God's judgment was on the son and not on me. Praise be to God. Go to 1 John 2. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, uh, verse 1, I'm sorry. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation for our sin. See, it's, it's Christ satisfies the wrath of God by suffering in our place. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. But what he's saying in this passage, folks, is that God's wrath, instead of coming on me, God's wrath went on the person of Christ. Christ bore 
the wrath of God, not for what he did, but for what I did. He was my substitute. He died in my place. And this is important to understand because what is God's wrath? God's wrath is God's reaction to a violation of his holiness. All right. God's judgment is poured out upon all who violate his holiness. All right. So God is going to judge sin. So when man sins and all mankind of sin, all sin is against God and against God's holy standard. Therefore, who gets to decide what is sufficient payment? God. Because it is God whose holiness has been violated. But yet, if you'll notice, most people think it's their responsibility to decide how God will be appeased. I will do this good deed. I will do this good work. Maybe God will look on me with favor and realize that I'm really not that bad. I'm not as bad as that dude sitting two rows in front of me. I'm not like him. I'm not like her. See, man sets his own standard. But when God is the one who's been violated, the only person that's got to be appeased is God. Therefore, God decides what is necessary for him to be appeased. And God's plan is clearly revealed in Scripture that he will pour his wrath out on sin, but that sin will be borne by his son. And his son will suffer in our place and pay the debt for our sin. He is the only acceptable substitute for our sin. And if you've trusted in Christ, if you've received Christ, the wrath of God will not come upon you because his wrath is for his enemies. And we are his children. Therefore, we don't suffer the penalty of his wrath. My sins have been paid for. And God judges that sin there. And so God is propitiated by the death of Christ. He's satisfied. And so we see the wrath of God is a violation of God's holy standard. The wrath of God is something to fear, but the wrath of God is satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can stand before God, not as an enemy, but as a friend of God and as a child of God. That's the difference between the redeemed and the unredeemed. You have a relationship with God that is eternal because of the work of Jesus Christ. There's no fear of the wrath of God if you know God. If you know him through the person of Christ and have received him. If you're here, you've never trusted Christ. That's the only remedy for your sin. That's the only remedy is believe that Jesus died for you. Trust in him. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your own ideas. Trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that, you can do that right where you are. You believe Jesus died for your sin. You believe he was buried. You believe he rose again. Put your faith and trust in him. Believe on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of holiness, that you have a righteous standard, that you are just, that you're long-suffering toward us, 
that you're kind, that you're merciful. But God, we also understand that you're a God of wrath. But Lord, we can escape the wrath of God by faith in Christ. Because you poured out your wrath against my sin on your son. And Father, my prayer is if there's any here today that's never trusted in that son, that they would do so today. That they would receive from you that gift of eternal life. Father, we thank you for what you've done. We're grateful to you for what you've done. We pray this in Christ's name, Lord. Amen.